Our sermon today is taken from John 17, verses 20 through 26. This is the word of God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Joanna. Friends, let me pray for us for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who in these final words, Lord God, had prayed for the unity of the church, that we would become one just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one an eternity past. Father, we thank you for this privilege that you've set us apart, that you've looked upon us, and you've loved us with the love with which you have loved your son. You do not love us according to what we have done. You don't love us according to what we have obeyed or the things or our own records, Lord God. Rather, you've loved us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us today. Be present with us as your spirit is here. Make the things that are in this text clear into our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we are in the final part of the farewell discourse, which is in chapters 14 and 17 of John's gospel. These are the last words that Jesus is saying in the upper room where Jesus just had the last supper with um, the disciples. And then he's about to be betrayed, handed off to Pilate and to be crucified. So these are his last words. We've been going through these passages for a number of weeks now. And then now we're closing in at the end. And this last chapter of the farewell discourse, the farewell discourse or the goodbye discourse, right, is from chapters 14 and 17. The end of it in chapter 17 is one long prayer. It is the other Lord's Prayer. If we prayed the Lord's Prayer just now, this is the other Lord's Prayer where Jesus Christ prays um, to the Father as he's about to be handed off. He prays for himself that he would be glorified. He also prays for the church. And in this last portion, he's very specific about what he desires the church to become. How is the church going to be modeled after? And we see over and over again in this last passage, from verses 20 to 26, the unity of the church that Jesus wants. And um, the first four verses of this passage, verses 20 to 23, you really get one theme, and it's going to be elaborated upon in two points in the first two points of the sermon. And it is that the unity of the church has to be modeled after the unity of the Trinity. So, Jesus is actually saying, whatever the church is supposed to be, the Sunday morning here, the people collected by God, we have to be modeled after the Trinity himself. So actually, to, to create a, a model of unity for the church, he doesn't go over techniques or, or any kind of practical examples. No, he, he actually goes right up. He peers open a little glimpse of the triune God, a little glimpse of what the Father and Son were like from before creation began, and then he says... That's the unity the church has to become. That's the unity that has to be taking place here in the church. In other words, he says, 
for the church to be one, you got to know how God is one. For you to function properly as a church, you got to know how the, how, the, how the triune God from before eternity passed all has been one. So in other words, the church is not a sociological movement. It's first and foremost a theological institution. In other words, it is God himself who has created this church. It is God himself who has instituted this church. It is God himself who has redeemed this church. And therefore, it is to God alone that we have to pattern our lives. Not to the world, not to our own patterns of understanding, not to our own inclinations or cultural tendencies, but rather the unity of God himself. When we see this, especially in the first um, four verses and then the last two verses, we'll see it, the root of that unity. So first point, there's three points in our sermon today. First point, we've got to take a look at the unity of the Trinity. All right, this is going to be pretty heady stuff at first, but don't worry, we're going to get to the ground. First, first point, the unity of the Trinity, which patterns the unity of the church. So that's our second point, the unity of the church. And then third, therefore, the, the root of that unity. So first, the unity of the Trinity. And what you're going to see in these first four verses is that the church's unity is modeled after this triune Unity, the, 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 the unity that's always been in God from before the foundation of the world, before creation itself. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 20 as he's praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, anyone who would become Christians through the word of the apostles, through the New Testament, in other words. That they all may be one. That the church may be in unity, Right? Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Notice that movement, right? The church has to be one, just as the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And this is a kind of unity that causes the world to look at the church and then say, the Father and the Son are real, that God is real. Look at that. You see that? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, there's going to be, the unity of the church is going to be so profoundly beautiful, so profoundly glorious, that when the world looks at the love and the unity within the church, they will see a peculiar kind of glory that actually discloses to them, reveals to them that Jesus really is the Son, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit really are one God. He reiterates this in verse 22. He says, the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Notice that again, the unity of the church grounded in the unity of the Trinity, the, the, the unity of God. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So we got to think about this a little bit. Right? This, is, this is not surprising for us, especially... Christians, we believe that human beings are made in the image of God. And the essence of being made in the image of God is that to the extent that you're imaging something, you know that thing that you're imaging. You have to become like the very thing that you're supposed to be reflecting. And Jesus is saying here, collectively, the church has to be one just as God himself is one. The Father, Son are one from before the foundation of the world. He, ha he has always been one. The Father and the Son had always been in unity. The Father had always loved the Son. And just in that way, the church has to be one. So Jesus, again, is peeling open the veil of infinite, the infinite God and, and, and disclosing to us, revealing to us 
the secrets of the, the most basic reality behind everything else. And he's saying here that behind everything else that exists, behind all the material, behind all creation, is this personal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you want to be one, know how we are one. If you want to live life well, if you, want, if you want to function as a church, as you're properly supposed to function, know how the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit have always been one from the very beginning. Friends, that might sound heady to you. And, and by the way, this is unique to Christianity, right? No other religion in the world actually proclaims one God and within this one God who's one in essence but three in persons. So somehow we have to maintain this, this mystery, this paradox that God is completely and entirely one. There's only one God. Worship only one God. If you have any other gods, you're, wor you're worshiping idols. But at the same time, within this one God, there's relationality. There's distinctiveness. There's distinctions without division. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such that somehow, when you think of the threeness of God, it's not three gods, but one. When you think of the oneness of God, Yes, he's, he's purely one, but it's not a oneness that denies the threeness. So you got to keep going back and forth. And so behind all of reality is this one and three, three and one, the triune God. And that's unique to Christianity, friends. And this is why for Christianity, 1 John 4, right? what is a fundamental claim by the Christian faith? God is love. The unity of the Trinity is a unity of love. The Father had always loved the Son, and the Son had always been captivated by the love of the Father and loves the Father. This has always been the foundation of our reality. God, before He created you and me, before He brought the universe into existence, had always been love. Friends, do you realize that if God was not triune, if God was not a Trinitarian God, God was purely a, what, what they call a monadic God. God is just purely one, no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He would not be loved. God might have been powerful before creation. God might have been all-knowing before creation, but he couldn't be loved. Why? Because love, by definition, requires an object to be loved, a beloved. Love is an other-oriented attribute. You see, if God was purely one and there was no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from before the foundation of the world, he could not be love. He wouldn't be able to exemplify the attribute of love. In other words, he would be powerful, sure, but he would need creation to be love. Because without creation, there would be no love. But what Jesus is saying here is, even before creation existed, there was personality. There was true love. God didn't need creation in order to be love. From before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son were always existing in a love relation. There was always an otherness in God and the oneness of God that made him love. Right? That means, friends, what is basic about ultimate reality, what is most basic about your life today, what, is most, what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It's, it's personhood. It's relationality. It's love, right? You know, if, if you were about to die, okay, and, and you're, you're in your deathbed, and your spouse is holding your hand, right? And you're looking at her or him in the eye, and then they ask you, do you have any, do you have any words to say? 
And then you say something like this. I am so thankful I have six cars. I make six figures. I've lived a pretty good life. Look at this hospital room. It is nice. Uh, um, you know, I, I have a lot of things. I, I have a yacht. I have a great retirement plan. Life is pretty good, my friends. You, you, laugh, you laugh at that. Why? Why do you laugh at that? Why do you feel that's kind of odd, right? That's kind of odd. In fact, if, if, you, if you read, you know, there was an article in Forbes magazine, like the, the 25 things that rich CEOs or something regret the most. What did they say? They regret not having been there for their family more. They, they regret not expressing their love more. You see, the, in other words, there's, there's something more basic about personhood, about love relations that constitute the human being, that make you who you are. That without love and relationality, there's something about your life that is just simply missing. Because friends, life is not purely material. What's most basic about your life is not your physicality, right? It's not the fact that you're, you're, you're of a material origin, right? The secular worldview tells you that's all you are. That's all you are. You know, uh, um, love, this, it's not real, it's just oxytocin. It's chemicals in your brain moving, right? I mean, just, just think about how, how to make the most money for yourself. Think about how to accrue the most properties for yourself, right? That, that's, that, that means, in other words, what's most basic about life is not relationships, it's ruthless pragmatism, it's materialism, it's all these things that make you who you are. Work hard so you get more stuff. That's the secularist worldview. Christianity says, no, that you can't, you're, not, you're not being human beings well unless you have real personal relationships, unless you have love at the bottom, unless you are actually imaging God who is absolute personality. As one theologian once says, God is absolute personality. And if that's the case, personality is what constitutes the human self, the human being, community. You see what I mean? You know, there's this funny scene. One of my guilty pleasures is watching the HBO series Silicon Valley. It's about a bunch of tech startups and, and you know, VCs in, in, in Silicon Valley. It's a very secular society, right? Especially in, in Silicon Valley. And they're, they're set, you know, it's a satire. They're, they're, they're making fun of, you know, big tech companies. So they have their own, you know, fictional versions of Apple and Google and other startup stuff, right? And there was this one scene where the whole, the whole show is, is about making fun of this ruthless. They're just trying to tackle each other. They're trying to win each, each other's business, just dominate and be, be a monopoly and all those sort of things. There's this one funny scene where Huli, which is their version of Google, the CEO had just lost a bunch of money and... This, this whole battle, by the way, for him to win this, this money or whatever and to destroy this other company was just the, the main narrative of this whole season. And then he's like watching the screen full of numbers and he's like anticipating, right? Like what's going to happen to my company? What's going to happen? And then suddenly, in a very comedic moment, he just he, he stops stressing. He stops screaming at the screen. He stops and then he starts to walk away. And then he suddenly says, sir, what's wrong? And then he always says, why am I even doing this? Why am I, why, why am, why am I so stressed by this? Why, why have I spent all year doing this? The next scene was hilarious because the next scene he was meditating on a yoga mat with a Hindu spiritualist. In the middle of like, you know, what's equivalent to the Google like CEO office, right? I mean like, what in the world is a Hindu spiritualist suddenly doing 
in the most secular part of society in Silicon Valley, which is apparently a real thing that happens, right? Why is that? But friends, materialism, the matter of the physical, it's not what's ultimate. You, why is it that despite all the technological advancements, economic advancements, properties that you have, all the money that you have, it doesn't get rid of your problems of being human? It doesn't get rid of it. You can have all the stuff in the world and sit alone in a huge mansion at night wondering, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my life? I'm lonely. I'm, 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 why, you know, I feel guilty. I feel, I, how do I get rid of that? What does it mean to flourish? You could be alone in a mansion still wondering those kind of questions. You know, it's a debate within higher academia as what curriculum should you include in the universities, right? And what's, what's happening right now in, in higher education is a push towards the professional industry, the professional degrees, right? So there's a huge push for the STEM, for the science, technology, engineering, mathematics, as the push for higher academia, because um, there are key quantifiable variables there, right? I mean, you could, you could calculate it. How, how much are people making after they're graduating? And what, what kind of jobs are they getting, right? So, so this is the push in higher academia. And, but what happens is when the professional degrees and industries are going up, the humanities are falling behind. Liberal arts education is falling behind. So like philosophy, history, um, um, well, forget theology, right? I mean, these are just, they're, they're, these, these are not degrees that are being facilitated anymore and not really prioritized in higher education just as much, right? So you go to um, particular universities, they don't even offer these kind of degrees or they have a much smaller faculty department, but their business building is massive, it's huge, it's glorious, right? But friends, what those examples I just accrued for you showed is that you can't get rid of your problems of being human no matter how lucrative your job is after getting your degree. You can't get rid of it. You can't gnaw. You can't, there's, there's only so much you could do to distract yourself from the foundational reality that you are a human being and you need purpose, meaning, relationships, love, and you will not get those things in the purely material. You won't. Why? Because you were made in the image of God. From before the foundation of the world, there was love. Before the foundation of the world, there was relationality. And God made, it is not good for man to be alone. God made you in a particular way. So don't go against the grain of your creation by suffocating that, pretending as if it doesn't exist. You will only feel emptier. So there's love at the foundation of reality. But notice at the foundation of reality, there's also in the Trinity, even though God is one, the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, this unity within the Trinity does not deny diversity. When the Father and the Son are in one another, notice Jesus doesn't say, so we're now, you know, a third thing, like Father-Son. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get rid of the distinctiveness of the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. You can't get rid of the distinctiveness of the two persons and, of course, of the third person, the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had been talking about here. In other words, in the back of reality, it's not just relationality and love. It's also this motif of the unity and diversity. Okay, unity and diversity. Let me, let me just 
probe on this for a moment, and this is going to be really key for our second point, okay? What kind of unity should the church have? It's great to talk in the abstract. It's great to talk in the abstract about, yeah, the church has to be united, especially in our postmodern culture. It just gives you warm and fuzzy feelings. Then you say, well, what does that look like? What does that look like? So let's, let's talk about that. So second point, the unity of the church has to be not only modeled by love relations and personality, but also a unity and diversity. Because in the triune God is unity and diversity. It's foundational. Friends, it is unity and diversity implies at least a denial of two things. First, if it's unity, it's not uniformity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are still distinct persons, right? They're not eluding each other's distinctiveness. So unity is not uniformity. It's not mere conformity. Not uniformity. It's not tyranny. But at the same time, unity and diversity means it's not anarchy or relativism. You know, whatever distinctions go, okay? So, so unity and diversity is not uniformity, it's not relativity, okay? Let me just give five examples. I'll try my best. Or four. Well, let's just say four. Four examples of the unity and diversity of the church, okay? That gives you really concretely what the church ought to look like, okay? Culture. The church has to be, biblically speaking, a multicultural, institutional, organic reality, okay? We've touched on this multiple times in the series in the Gospel of John, how this, we, we worship no longer in Jerusalem. We worship in spirit and in truth. Christianity in the second century was the first religious movement that was also a multi-ethnic, multicultural movement, right? That suddenly you don't have to be Jewish to worship the true God. You know, in the ancient world, Romans had their gods, the Greeks had their pantheon of gods, and if you wanted help from another god, you needed to actually travel to a different nation and to conform to their ethnic and cultural rules to worship their god. Christianity comes in and says, your religious identity, your theological, your identity as a Christian doesn't mean that you have to change your culture. So you, so you could be an Asian Christian, a Caucasian Christian, an African Christian, doesn't matter. One of the faults of colonialism is actually confusing Christianity with a particular culture and saying, for you to become Christians, you need to become enlightened European Christians. You see, that's missing the foundational point of what Jesus is saying here. To, to, be, to be a church that is united, you have to be a diverse culture and at the same time, a, a united despite those differences. It's a unity and diversity. It's not conformity. It's not uniformity, you see. So you, you suddenly, if you're a Christian and you believe in unity and diversity, it cuts from underneath the feet of any kind of cultural snobbery, which is something every one of us are prone to doing. One funny example, I was, I was just with a family trip, right? And I was, uh, we were eating a lot of Western food in this family trip, and my parents were, were eating this food. And some, the thing about like European food is that they focus on fresh ingredients and, you know, very simple, right? It's a salad, lettuce, tomato, olive oil, and salt. Boom, salad, right? It's, you know, it's, it's good. It's fresh. If it's fresh, they serve it to you, right? And then, you know, my mother, who's very traditionally Chinese, right? I'm, I'm Chinese, so anyway, so just so you know, for the context, um, um, who's very traditionally Chinese, she starts eating this, this food, and a few days later, she, you know, she's like complaining, like, oh, this food is tasteless. And then she doesn't just make an aesthetic judgment. She starts to make a normative judgment. 
Chinese people just cook better food. It's no longer just like, I, I like Hainanese chicken rice better than salads. It's like, uh, we make better food. You know, we just make better food, you know. Um, if that, see, that's, that's, a, that's a cultural snobbery movement, right? I mean, that's, that's suddenly you saying, my culture is different from yours. And not just that, it's better than yours, okay? Christianity cuts underneath all that and says every culture is sinful, yet every culture can be redeemed, okay? Every culture is sinful, and every culture can be redeemed. And, and, and let me push on this a little bit, okay? I was just in Manila in the Philippines, right? And I was speaking at a conference for a lot of churches, and there was a, uh, um, I was talking about God and culture. So, so how do we think about culture theologically? How do we think about culture biblically, right? And, um, and apparently in Manila and in the Philippines, there's also a kind of racial tension between the Chinese Filipinos and the, Filipi the native Filipinos, right? Uh, it sounds familiar to us Jakartans? Okay, good. So um, there's this kind of tension, and a couple of well-meaning guys saw that I, I look Chinese, and they probably thought, this guy's Chinese, right? So literally, they came up to me. So, I, I, okay, by the way, I was talking about common grace. What is common grace? Common grace is the view that um, non-Christians can be oftentimes morally virtuous, can be smarter than Christians, can, can enjoy a lot of good things from God because God gives good gifts even to non-believers. And we can enjoy everything that is true and good and beautiful because all truth, all goodness comes from God, right? So every culture, even though they're not Christian, can oftentimes be better, better morally in a lot of ways, right? By the, and that's supposed to humble us. The point of that was to humble us and to say we can learn from non-Christians and to say we can be persuasive to non-Christians. Okay, that's the point of my talk, all right? Two guys approached me afterwards. Well-meaning, they assumed I was Chinese, and they said, you know, uh, Gray, um, can you explain to me then, why is it that God has given the Chinese more grace? I was like, what? Where did you get that from my talk? Like, there was nothing in my talk that talked about racial superiority in any sort of fashion or way, right? Like, what? Like, and it, it, he went on, like, like I, this is a true story, okay? Truth is stranger than fiction, okay? You know, we are more disciplined. We are just, we wake up in the morning, you know? We, 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 like, I was, I, was, I was, like, freaking out, you know what I mean? I was like, okay, I got to clarify some things here, lest there be misunderstandings. And then, literally, a second guy came up, uh, no joke, second guy came up, he's like, no, 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 it's not the Chinese, it's the Japanese. <laughs> and I, I was like, where in the world did you get that from my talks? You know, and I was like, all right, all right, okay, listen, okay? Could it be that this, this virtue of self-discipline has blinded you to the fact that you are just as simple as somebody else? Could, what about promiscuity rates? What about suicide rates? Have you, have you thought about that? Have you thought about your work ethic of discipline that created the burnout culture in China and Japan? Have you thought about that? And, and then they're like, hmm. And, and, and then, you know, and, and, and then I was like, do you speak Chinese? I'm sorry, I don't. I am Chinese. I love you guys. You know, but, but, but they were like, they were, they were, you know, it just doesn't compute. So I was like, but, but you see, friends, if you believe what Jesus is saying here, and you believe in unity and diversity, 
Be honest about your own cultural dispositions. Suddenly you can actually say, my culture has blind spots, other cultures have blind spots, we need one another, right? So, 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 so traditional Chinese people could stop looking at the West and say, oh, you're, you're lazy. And Western people could stop looking at the Chinese and say, you're so uptight, right? You know, you, you gotta, you, you suddenly see the two different cultures working together because we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots. Sin is inherently something that you deceive yourself about, you see. You need someone who's utterly different from you to be able to look through that and look you in the eye and say, hey, look, there's some things here. This is why, friends, when you travel, things shock you, right? Like things that you took for granted, you can't take for granted anymore. So culture. Suddenly you look at your own cultural instincts and you say, Every culture is equally sinful. I can't assume my culture is inherently better. So culture and race, I guess that's two things. Okay, relationships. Let me push on this a little bit further. Okay. Asian cultures, um, especially in relationships, have the tendency to really, really desire your children to marry into the same race. You're like nodding like this is the gospel. This is, this, this is, not, this is not the gospel yet, okay? Uh, this is implications of the gospel, okay? Like, like, like so I got to watch the time here because uh, I, can, I, can, I can talk about this all day. But look, look there, there's a tendency to say that my genealogical heritage is more important than the Christian faith. Can I say that? My genealogical heritage is more important than the Christian faith. I mean, read our, 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 read our assurance of pardon again, right? There is no more Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Read that again and just take that in for a moment, okay? Do you see your race as more important for your progeny than the propelling of the Christian faith? And therefore, you see interracial marriage as a threat than potentially a good. Look, I'm not saying that you can't, Marrying them in the same race. That's perfectly fine and good. It might be your calling to do so. I'm not saying that at all. But do you see interracial marriage as a threat? All right. I, I, I mean, I'm looking at you guys, and, and I, I see there's so, there's so many cultures represented here, right? But I, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have a feeling some of us think it's good for us to be friends, but not too close. It's good for you to be friends with my kids, but not too close. Stop thinking that way. Okay, I'll stop there. So vocation. Um, fourth thing, okay, so I got culture, race, relationships, vocation. Um, especially in Asia as well. Let me, let, me, let me hit on these cultural points, okay? I'm fresh from a God and Cultural Conference, so let me hit on this, okay? Vocation. Um, in a, in, if in the West, our main issue is freedom and, and relativity and... And, and anarchy, and everybody could do whatever they want. And, and, and the, in the East, here in Asia, so that's why I'm, I'm preaching in this way, okay? We're in Asia now. Now we're, in, we're, not, we're not in the West. Our main issue is not relativity or, or, or anarchy. Our main issue is uniformity. So let me talk about vocation, okay? Especially in our churches. Churches in Asia, our churches here, have the tendency um, to enforce a kind of uniformity in terms of vocation. So when um, there is smart people within the church, 
or talented people within the church, um, talented musically, talented in art, talented in whatever, talented in business, stuff like that, a lot of churches have the tendency to shame them into stopping what they're doing because that's not real holy work, but actually conform yourself to the ministry. So a lot of cultures in Asia, instead of saying everyone has different callings, different vocations, there's different spheres of life, different spheres of God's creation for us to work in and work together with, we have instead the tendency to say, no, there's only really one true calling. See, hamba-hamba Tuhan yang benar itu harusnya kayak gini. Gitu kan? So, so we, I mean, I'm, let, me, let me just, right? That's an Indonesian saying that says, you know, if you're a true servant of God, you have to be working in this way, right? So when someone comes to you and he's smart and he's engaged in, in public policy, we don't say, let me think about your issues and let, let me support you and empower you so that you can go back to your vocation and think about that well as a Christian. We instead shame them and say, you know, you have, you're so smart, you should really work for the ministry. Or, or pastors especially have the tendency to think because we're the authorities of the church, we're the authorities in every area of life. So someone from the art world comes to us and we have the tendency to say, uh, it's a Christian artist, you know, comes to us and say, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm, I'm, people are pushing me to, do, to, to sell my music in a certain way and things like that. And then our first instinct is not to say, let's create a community of Christian artists where you can really focus on the distinct and unique problems that you might have and empower you to engage that world. We have the tendency to say, I'll set up a lecture on Christianity and the arts. And you can bring your friends. I will tell you all that I need to do. We, say, we have a conformity issue where the authorities of the church become the authorities of also every area of life in such a way where you guys have to conform to everything that we say. That's a huge issue. Or if you don't do things particularly my way, you're wrong. That's a huge issue. Friends, if Christianity is true, every vocation is tainted by sin, but every vocation can also be redeemed. If Christianity is true, every culture is tainted by sin, but every culture can also be redeemed. If Christianity is true, every marriage is tainted by sin, but every marriage can be redeemed. Listen, unity and diversity is not uniformity and not anarchy. Empower others, embrace cultural distinctness, be self-critical about your own culture, be self-critical about your own vocation. And that, friends, is a theological unity. It's not a unity that, come, that could come from, from, you can't just force yourself. It, it, there's, there's, no, there's no mechanical way for you to engage us. How do we do this? How do we actually humble ourselves in such a way where we can say, you know what? I'm not any better from you, no matter what culture I came from, no matter what family I came from. I'm not any better for you just because I'm an elder at a church. I'm not any better from you just because I went to seminary. I'm not any better from you just because I'm engaged in the real world of business, right? What is it? that can actually stop us from wanting uniformity and actually humble us to the ground and say, I am a sinner just like anyone else, and I could engage myself in anyone else. Look at, look at verse 26, okay? Jesus said in the, in the last part of verse 23, but he repeats it in verse 26. In the last part of verse 23, he says, this is the last point, the root of the unity, how do we become this united? How do we embrace unity and diversity? At the end of verse 23, he says, 
so that the world that you know may the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So in other words, Jesus is hoping that the love that the Father has for the Son would also be shared to the world. And then verse 26, it says, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Here's the root. Okay? Friends, here's how you know that Christianity is not like any other religion. Every other religion says, God will love you just as you have deserved. Every other religion says, God will love you just as your culture has deserved. Every other religion says, God will love you just as how you have functioned in the workplace. Every other religion says, you do this much, God will love you this much. Only Christianity says, if God loves you according to who you are, friends, we'd all be in hell. We'd all be in hell. Right? No more room there into saying, my culture is better. My job is more holy. God will love me according to what I've done. No more room for any kind of snobbery. No more room for pride. Friends, Christianity is the only faith that actually says, if God were to, if Jesus' prayer is to say, God, Father, love them according to how much they have done. Lord, who can stand? No, Jesus is saying, love them with the love with which you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you notice the audacity of that claim? Jesus is saying the eternal love with which God the Father had loved the Son will be in you. How is that love? It's unconditional. It's eternal. You can't lose it. This is the divine approval that you need so that you can actually not, no longer use people and say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to use people so that when I do works, I need people to affirm me, right? Or when I get into a relationship, I need that love so that I know my worth, right? So, or when I, when I do my work, I need the KPI to, to really conform to what I hope would satisfy my ego, right? This is, this is what, it, how do you get this kind of unity and diversity? The supernatural, trinitarian unity and diversity that should characterize the church, where you're not intimidated by people in different vocations. You no, you no longer look at artists and say, you know, that's less than me. Or you no longer look at business and say, you know, that, that's less than me. You're no longer intimidated by different races. You're no longer intimidated. What kind of root is that? You need that foundational, foundational claim of the gospel. Friends, you could have never been loved by God. But God loves you anyway. How? Because Jesus Christ, the one and only Son, the one who was perfect, the only one who was perfect, the only one who was ever good, came into this world merited the love of the Father, obeyed the Father perfectly in your place. He, friends, He's not just your example. He's your Savior. He obeyed in your place, and though you should have died, He died for you. Right? He, and He resurrected to vindicate the fact that He was perfect where you could not have been perfect. And then the Father looks at the Son and by the Spirit unites you to the Son and says, I will love you just as I have loved the Son. 
And then suddenly you're reading the Bible all over again. And you're reading the Old Testament all over again. And then you're realizing this has been the message all along, hasn't it? This is why Christ had come. This is why he's praying. Abraham wasn't faithful so I could be more faithful. Abraham was a failure. He pointed to the true Jesus. David wasn't the righteous king that I could also become. I could be a righteous king. No. David was an adulterous king and he points to the true king. Job wasn't the sufferer so I can be the true sufferer. No. Job was unrighteous just as we all are. And in fact, he should have died along with everybody else. But instead, God had mercy on him. Why? Because Jesus was the true righteous sufferer. Solomon wasn't the great and wise king. That's so that you, if you learn from Solomon's principles, you could become wise. Jesus was the true and wise king for you on your behalf. Friends, read the Bible as not being one great message about your superiority. Read the Bible as being one great message about how the true Son of God had come. Loved by the Father so that you could be loved just as He was loved. And in that love, you can embrace others. You don't have to push other people away. You don't have to look down on other people in other cultures. You can actually say, I'm just as sinful as you are, and I need you. I need you to show me my sin. I need you so that I can love better. I need you to remind me that I too am saved. What is the root of our unity? What is the unity underlying our diversity as a church? We are a community of renewed and forgiven saints. Let your Christian identity be under your race, your marriage, your work, your culture. And this unity and diversity could become a reality too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. You have prayed for our unity. And it is not uniformity. We don't have to be striving after power so that others would conform to us. We don't have to look down our nose at other people. We can look at other cultures and not feel threatened. But rather, we can say, Lord God, by the power of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can enjoy this unity and diversity as you've wanted us to become. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.